Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of The Next Track. This is episode number 89. If you haven't checked out our older episodes, they are all stockpiled, along with the show notes at our website, thenexttrack.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at Next Track Cast. So today we have invited musician and music journalist James Jackson Toth to be on the show to talk a little about his failed experiment in dedicated listening. It is a somewhat sad tale. Uh, he joins us via Skype. James, thanks for being on the show, and, and it's great to meet you. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. James, we were both attracted by an article that you published on NPR last week, and it's entitled Too Much Music, A Failed Experiment in Dedicated Listening. We've talked about having too much music on this podcast in the past. In fact, episode number 85, we asked the question, how much music is too much? So reading about your experiment was really interesting to us as people who have been confronting this glut of music. Tell us about your experiment and how you came up with this idea. Well, it, it kind of came about as almost like a record store parlor game. You know, like we, uh, it, in, in the sort of the high fidelity mold, I was working at a record store and we would occasionally just kind of throw these gauntlets at each other. Like, what, could you do this? You know, and, and as, they, as we started talking about it, the more I thought about the experiment, the more I sort of liked the idea of trying to actually try to, uh, you know, conduct the experiment. And uh, I, I think someone else at the record store might have tried it too and lasted about as long as I did, which was maybe two or three days. So, so exactly what was the experiment? What was the challenge? Okay, so the experiment was to try to pick one record a week um, for a year and only listen to that record, uh, nothing else. And, and, you know, dedicated listening, meaning uh, not, not listening to it while you were doing laundry or the dishes or even running errands necessarily, but sitting down with headphones and maybe a drink or whatever, whatever your preferred uh, listening environment is and really just get to know a record the way all of us used to when we only got one record a week, when like our allowance only allowed us to get one record a week or a month, you know, that was, that was the gist of it. And so you only made this a few days. You didn't even get past the first record. <laughs> it didn't last long. And uh, I don't know if that, that says more about me or about the consumption culture or... No, that's... Um, I, it's, I've tried to do similar experiments like that. In fact, nothing as severe as one album a week. But I have definitely tried to sit down and say, okay, for an hour, once or twice a week, I'm going to sit down and actually listen to an album all the way through critically. And I could not do it. And I, I have, a, like you, I have a lot of musical interest. I have a, a very large music collection, like a lot of our listeners do. And I just couldn't... My problem is this. I've worked in radio for a while, and when I put a song on, I immediately start thinking, what's the next song? And sometimes... Sometimes I won't even make it through the song I put on first. 40 seconds in, I'll say, oh, you know what will sound great after this? And I'll go right to that song again. I have no patience for sitting down and listening as critically as I used to when I used to sit down and absorb, uh, as, as you say, you know, the liner notes, the, the, you'd learn the production team, you'd learn the, who wrote the song, how long the songs were. I mean, all of those things have gone by the wayside. I just don't do it anymore. Yeah, and I think it, it shouldn't feel like a chore. And, and it's, it's kind of, to me, it's, it's disappointing that it, it feels that way sometimes because uh, the reason that I started collecting music when I was really young is because it was, it was, it just made me happy. And, um, you know, the acquisition of music and, and listening to it still does make me happy as I'm sure it does for you too. But it's just because I feel overwhelmed by it, 
it starts to feel like like a little, those little red flags on Facebook where you come home and you're like, why do I have 33 new messages? Like, these are my friends. It shouldn't feel that way. But why do these things feel so overwhelming, you know? But you're also a professional musician. Right. Um, you you record under the name Wooden Wand. You're, I, is it fair to call you a singer-songwriter? Sure. So when you listen to music, a certain part of you is listening to music as a musician to see what other people are doing, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's that's one of the things that uh, that for me is, is so enjoyable. Is it's all grist for the mill. Um, even if I'm listening to a reggae record or a techno record, I'm I'm always thinking about oh that snare sound or which is actually also another problem because it it you you stop hearing music at a certain point and you start hearing decisions. You start thinking like, oh, I wonder why they put like like you know plate reverb on that or oh that's a weird way to record the bass you know what i mean it just it changes the way you listen that's not good or bad necessarily but it's different yeah it's it's that you can't separate the personal from the professional right right so you say that you started out when you were young and you were buying an album a week and and doug and i were talking before the show we've gotten to the point where there's a new generation now who will never know this experience of only having a certain amount of music. You know, the, the, Doug and I were a generation older than you, and we both came of age in the 70s, and we would wait for our favorite bands to release records, and we'd go get them either on the subway or the bus and take them home, and it would be an event. It would be an experience. But now, anyone who's a teenager or younger will always have that endless spigot of music available at a click, and they will never have this experience that we did. Right. And I think it's easy to think about that as like a boon or, or something really positive. And in, in many ways it is. But I also pity them in a lot of ways because of the relationship that we developed for music. Like one thing I, I was talking to a friend about is I miss buying bad records. I miss I miss the trial and error of learning to love love a record because you think, oh, man, this is, you know, I, I spent like my allowance on this, my paycheck on this, like and. You know, like when I was a kid, I would read in skateboard magazines. I'd hear about bands like, say, like uh, Flipper um, or uh, the Pixies or Television. And then you'd go to the mall and the, you bought the one that they had. So my experience listening to those bands for the first time, like the first Pixies album I had was Trompe Le Monde. The first Flipper album I had was American Graffiti, which was their major label album. And it was everywhere. You know, and then you'd have to figure out, like, wow, why do people like this? This isn't, you know. Uh, imagine if the first Miles Davis record you ever heard was You're Under Arrest. You know, you you say like, wait, this is the guy, you know? Or if the first Miles Davis song you ever heard was him doing Time After Time. <laughs> right, or Human Nature, right, exactly. You know, but like, I, you know, back then when you'd hear a record and you didn't like it, you made damn sure you got all the way through it. You were like, if Side One sucked, you said, well, there's got to be something on here. that, And, and you know, I, I've some of my favorite records of all time are have resulted from that experience of initially saying like, I don't know if I like this. Whereas now if somebody's like, Oh, you have to check out this band. I'll go to YouTube or I'll, I'll just find it. And I'll be like, Oh, okay. I get it. I get, I get the vibe after 45 seconds. Like you were saying, um, it's just like, Oh, I, I get this next. I, I'm, I'm reminded of, I'm, I'm a big fan of Brian Eno and I've been a fan of his music since the seventies. And he, he of course is very prolific, but I'm reminded of, of a record he put out in the nineties called nerve net. Mm -hmm. And I bought this maybe 93 or 95. I bought it used in a record store and I put it on once and I was like, Ooh, this isn't Brian Eno. <laughs> and I put it away. And I, I think it was a few years ago when they re-released some of these records from that period, 
in expanded editions that I realized how much I had been missing all this time by not appreciating that record, which is a period of Brian Eno's music and an extraordinary period. Yes. So, you know, at the time, I listened to it a few times and I put it aside, but it was always there. I just never pulled it out again. Another example is um, I was a huge Cure fan back in the day, mm -hmm. the, the early Cure, before they went all, you know, hair and makeup and all that. Right. And when the Pornography album came out, I think this was 1982, I couldn't wait to get this. You know, this had just followed Faith, which was an extraordinary album. Yeah. I'd seen them live in New York. And pornography came out, and I was so disappointed, yet I kept listening to it, and I kept listening to it. And while it's not my favorite, I could have more easily given up on it after a couple of listens. But since I had it, and since at the time I had 50 or 60 albums, so I didn't have that much to choose from, I did put in the effort to try and appreciate it. Yeah, and, and uh, it's interesting you mentioned The Cure, because like the, 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 the few, like the decade or so between us, pornography is probably my favorite cure record but see when i went back and listened to kiss me kiss me kiss me i was like ah i'm not into this at all <laughs> so pornography is the last good cure record i like disintegration too but uh, you brought up a good point about like having you know you you didn't get rid of nerve net you had it right yeah and and i think that that's that's a key thing is that like people are really down on like things now like owning things and I, there's some persuasive arguments for downsizing but I, I think sometimes there's this thing where you you go looking for a record, a real not a virtual collection in your virtual collection, but a real record in in a stack. And while scanning and looking for it, you find a different record, and you think, oh, I haven't listened to this in forever, or I've been meaning to give this another chance, and you pull that record out instead. And I just don't see that happening on iTunes or Spotify. Like that, those discoveries. There's nothing seductive about a Spotify playlist to me. You know, but a record, like looking at someone's stack of records, like leafing through, you guys said something on an earlier podcast about how listening is not always the point. And I think that's a controversial thing to say, but I totally agree. You know, I mean, on the one hand, there's like the, the nagging worry that this is all just retail therapy, you know, and like it's about like acquisition. But the other side of it is that organizing is fun for some people. And I'm one of those people. And I, I think being uh, being in the presence of the collection sometimes is like is a really is a really fun, enjoyable thing, you know. And like so, if you didn't have, if you got rid of NerveNet or just deleted it from your iTunes, you would have never gone back to it. You might not have heard. Of it. Exactly. Yeah. You, you mentioned the high fidelity experience, and I've mentioned on the podcast many times that I had a couple of years when I hung out in a record store, and we didn't do the whole list thing in high fidelity, but we shared our music, and we would all discover the new music that we didn't have to buy because we were friends with the guy in the record store and he would play it. Yeah. But one thing was really interesting is there'd be a bunch of records and someone would come in and say, well, have you heard this? And we might, you know, some of us might think, well, I didn't really like that. And he said, no, put it on. And then we'd listen to it with new ears. Or you'd go over to someone's house, like Stu, the guy who owned the record store, he, he had more records than anyone. You'd go over to his house and you'd look through his records and you'd say, I've never heard this. Can you put it on? And maybe Stu hadn't listened to that record in a while or hadn't truly appreciated it. Right. And the fact of someone going through your collection and asking to listen things can also give you a sort of experience of rediscovering the music you own. Oh, that's totally true. Um, I have a good friend, Jeff Lewis, who's a very a talented illustrator and a singer-songwriter as well. And uh, I, I did a tour with him once, and he had this great idea, kind of an, his own experiment, where he would have whoever was in the passenger seat DJ, but only from the driver's iPod. So like you'd be driving, listening to stuff on your iPod 
and you'd be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, like, so like <laughs> your own stuff. And it'd be like, wow, I really got to hear this record again because the context of maybe just being driving or listening, you know, cause you listen differently when you're in a room with other people than when you're by yourself. So I think yeah. experience of like, wow, I, I totally didn't get to track eight on this record. Now I need to go back to it. I'm not sure if people have that experience either with playlists, the, um, proliferation of playlists it sort of just confirms for some people you know they they know what they like and they like what they know and it it kind of keeps them in a bubble where they don't get a chance to experiment i mean there may be a few esoteric things in their favorite playlist but i think um most of the playlists that i see that are created or curated just seem to be just comfort songs they're not necessarily well, wallpaper, or as, wallpaper, as we like to say here. It's music as wallpaper. And there's nothing adventurous and there's nothing discoverable in, in these things. And I think a lot of people are missing out on, on a lot of the those discovery uh, adventures that you have by going looking at somebody else's iPhone. I guess that's what you have to do, looking at this Spotify playlist. Is that the same as going and looking at someone's record collection? Well, remember when you go over to someone's house and you would the first thing you would do is look at their record collection. And this is how you'd learn about the person. You can't do that anymore. You can't take someone's iPhone and start browsing through their iTunes library or Spotify playlist. It's a completely different experience. And I, I agree. You can tell a lot about a person, not in a judgmental way, just tell a lot about a person by their, their record shelf and, and their bookshelf. And uh, now I imagine like, I, what what does the average millennials dorm room looks like? It probably looks like the Corova milk bar from Clockwork Orange, you know, <laughs> all these sleek Apple pro and maybe a poster of Steve Jobs on the wall or something. I don't know. But oh, like Steve Jobs is so passe. I'm sure they're not into <laughs> Steve Jobs anymore. But you know, the, the idea of the record collection as an autobiography and a scrapbook is, is something that I find very romantic and maybe that's very old fashioned too. But I mean, we wouldn't be talking about this if we weren't old fashioned. I mean, there's the, the old man yelling at cloud meme. I'm sure you guys have seen and like, yeah, but we do it a lot. We, we yell at the lawn a lot. <laughs> the lawn, right? Doesn't stay off of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting what you said about, you know, you look at someone's record collection or book collection. When I was reading your article, I noticed, for instance, I'm I'm a big book person. I have thousands of books. And you mentioned the brothers Karamazov and Moby Dick and David Foster Wallace. And that automatically sets up an image of you as someone who's interested in things that aren't mainstream. And it's the same with music. You know, if you go to someone's house and all you find is like a Kanye West record or a Yanni record, right. you get a pretty good idea of who they are. Yeah, or at least or at least the things they're interested in, for sure. Um, I think that's that's very true. Um, but as far as the books go, like, I, I, I mean, it's my my passion for for literature and, and things like that is, is still different than music uh, because, well, let me put it this way. I, I could probably move tomorrow with a gym bag and a backpack, if it weren't for my record collection. As it stands now, I, I keep a lot of my records in a 10 by 15 storage facility because I can't accommodate them in my house. My wife's an academic and a professor, so she has a big book collection. So between the two of us, you know, we would need a McMansion to house all of our stuff. Um, but, but uh, you know, my storage locker is like almost like a physical manifestation of my itunes folder it's it's all literally there it's imagine if you had an ipod but like in real life so it's like i i don't keep books i own maybe five dvds i've been wearing the same clothes for 20 years it's really just like records and cds and tapes that I've, i'm really interested in in accumulating so w one thing that really struck a chord with me on this article we keep a list of topics for the podcast and there's one topic that i wrote down months ago deep listening versus broad listening 
And I was trying to figure out a way to get this into an episode. And, and this is essentially what you were doing here. You were trying a, an experiment of deep listening, as you say, listen to one album a week. And, you know, going back to those early days, some of the first albums I owned were the first two albums by Chicago. And these were two LP sets, double, double albums, and each was about an hour long. And I, I couldn't even count how many times I listened to them because when I owned only 10 albums, you listen to them over and over. And of course, we don't have that opportunity anymore. But even the idea of deep listening, of sitting and really paying attention to something, I think you use the term close listening in your article, which is similar to what people say for reading. They talk about close reading. Yeah. Why have we lost this? Is it just that people are impatient or that music or, or that the value of music has changed? It might be a chicken egg sort of thing. I think that the, the value of music has changed because things have changed. Um, I think there's, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of people like Douglas Rushkoff, who wrote a book called Present Shock. And uh, he addresses a lot of the stuff about like cognitively, we can't we just simply can't keep up. And I think for a lot of people, it's 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 just like drinking from the fire hose. Is, it feels like a good thing. Like you have so much access to things. And again, that's that is good. But um, for people like us who really sort of miss those those interactions with with music, the way, you know, the things that formed us as music fans, I think it's troubling because you're not listening in the same way anymore. And, you know, you like to think you're, you know, you're autonomous, you can do what you want, but really it's my experiment proved that it's, it's difficult. At least it was for me. I'm, I'm wondering if it's, if it's because we're older and for some reason our brains just don't want to get involved anymore. I mean, uh, like all of us, we've, I've had experiences when I was, when I was a teenager, I would listen to get your yayas out for instance, over and over again, and play guitar to it. And that's how I learned how to play like Keith Richards. And I played it over and over again and learned every little lick intimately. And I find every so often I'll say, do you know, I never do that anymore. And I'm like, and I don't want to do it anymore. I don't, I don't want to sit down and listen to Humble Pie and play to those albums anymore. Yet back in the day, it was the most fun I could have on a Saturday afternoon was just playing by myself to my records. But now the whole idea of that just seems absurd. And I, I, I wonder if I've just lost some capacity to become intimate with the music that I have. Hmm. I mean, th I think what you're saying, too, also has ramifications in the music that's produced now. Like, um, I mean, it's also there's 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 so many more distractions. Um, and I don't use that word pejoratively. I just mean in general. I don't know how you feel about the E Street Band, but when you listen to the, the like E Street Band early and you and then you stop and think these guys were in their 20s. Now, I'm a musician. I've toured all over the place. I don't know anybody that can play like that now. And I think the fact is those guys got home from school, if they went to school at all, and they played. That's, there were no video games. There was no internet. There was nothing but that. And I think that that has, uh, you know, that you can see it in the music. I'm not saying that music's worse now. I'm not going to be the, again, the old man yelling at the cloud. But it's, it, it is a fact that, like, you listen to Get Your Yaya's out, and you probably took your E string off, and you kind of got the Keith Richards thing. And, like, you, you, I, you're not doing that now. So if you're not doing it now, a 20-year-old kid is definitely not doing that now. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that because uh, there are that many distract. There are so many other things they can do besides become, you know, romantically involved with, with the music that they listen to. Yeah. Well, there are other ways to meet girls. <laughs> yeah. Back in the day, we all started bands because it was a way of meeting girls, right? <laughs> to some degree. Yeah, and that's, it's, it's a good point, actually. Not just that, but uh, there are fewer rewards for being a musician than ever. 
Like, obviously, there's not financial rewards. You, like you said, you can meet, you know, members of the opposite sex. You can you can score free drinks in any number of ways. You can meet other musicians, too. That's one of the reasons I did it. I liked it was a social thing. But anyway, you're right. Yeah. But yeah, ditto. But like, I think that but now it seems like it's strange because there seems to be more music than ever. Despite the fact that there's no one, no one's aiming for like Led Zeppelin status anymore, you know, at least nobody reasonable. <laughs> but will there ever be that sort of status anymore? Because the music industry is so fragmented. We did a show a while ago about the year 1977 and all the great concerts at Madison Square Garden in New York. And there was Led Zeppelin, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Yes. I mean, these were groups that became mythical. I, I'm skeptical that groups today become mythical. And I, I think another reason, and again, something we were talking about before the show, if all you're listening to is playlists, or most of what you're listening to is playlists, and you're just clicking from one song to another, and you don't own any physical items, you don't have any engagement with the artists anymore the way we did when we were buying the records, waiting for them to come on concert. It, it's, it seems to be a distancing of listeners from the concept of music, of loving music, of, again, that, that sort of high fidelity type of love. Yeah, I think that's true. And Kirk, I think I remember hearing that you were a deadhead. And uh, we, I totally am. Got a Grateful Dead T-shirt on <laughs> as as I do most days. We we share that syndrome, I'll call it. Um, and so yeah, seven, you mentioned seventy seven. It made me think of the dead and the sort of mythology you build around this, where you can you can tell like who's on keyboards within thirty seconds. I'm sure you can too. Um, and you're like, oh, that must be eighty five because there's Brent, you know, twinkling away. Um, twinkling away, exactly. <laughs> okay all you deadhead listeners who are brent fans i'm sorry hey jerry loved him jerry loved him he definitely lit a, he lit a fire under jerry he definitely has his mom but um because yeah i know remember you didn't get to the third volume of the compendium no i never bought it i no. see I, I i celebrate all the way to spring 90 but we'll, that's another that's another podcast <laughs> yeah yep but i think that what, what we're saying though is that I think it's also the fact that you can self-curate things now in a way that you couldn't before. I mean, I wouldn't say my parents are into music, but my parents definitely knew who Michael Jackson was. They knew who Prince was. And now if you want to avoid Katy Perry, you totally can. You know what I mean? Like there's not that like water cooler thing where everybody's talking about the same shows and the same artists. You know, you can, I mean, I work at a record store part-time and what's an amazing phenomenon is Younger people will come in wearing earbuds, and maybe that shouldn't upset me as much as it does, but it, it does because I remember how many records I heard just walking to a record store and went, whoa, what, what is this? I mean, I did that this week. Yeah. And, you know, it's like you're, you're, you're purposely blocking out new information, and, like, that's the best place to, to hear something that you've never heard before, even better than maybe listening to the radio. And it just seems weird to me that somebody would choose to, like, block that out you know well uh, you mentioned radio and and i know doug is is always following radio news and, and radio listening is still pretty high but we did an episode a couple months ago about disco and neither of us were fans of disco back in the 70s but we're able to appreciate now that disco really brought some excellent music mm. and the only reason we're familiar with disco is because we did hear it on the radio because we couldn't block it out at the time and in between listening to Born to Run on the radio in New York, we would hear Donna Summers and we would hear, you know, the soundtrack of Saturday Night Fever. Today, you can segregate your listening and not hear any of this music that might be popular for a segment of people and not for you. And then you'll miss this whole opportunity 20 years down the line to realize what you missed. Yeah, 
I mean, that's true. I mean, I, I guess the other side of that, though, is if is if you know you want to listen to dub reggae made in 1978 uh, in in England you're just a click away from it but you need to first have that curiosity and you need to have the awareness that that even exists you know what i mean i mean for a lot of people maybe reggae just means bob marley it is interesting because the the radio that i grew up listening to was top 40 and then it began to splinter into you know specific formats but i mean i grew up listening to ray price for the good times right alongside of sly and the family stone and i like ray price now but but also the condition was set that you know music isn't just a a tunnel vision genre it's it's a lot of different kinds of music i grew up in a household where there was a lot of different kinds of music there was a lot of different kinds of music on popular radio and then that consolidated and or as or maybe you'd want to say fragmented um well segregated by different formats and things like that so people there's no conditioning to know that there is different interesting music it's 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 more it's more focused on like i said earlier people know what they like and they like what they know yeah and you guys were talking earlier about the shows in the 70s like I look at old handbills and I'm amazed that, you know, you could get like Crosby, Stills and Nash and the Mahu Vishnu Orchestra and Charles Lloyd on the same bill. Right. And now think about all the people who are being exposed to jazz or like to like, you know, Prague or whatever, you know, Yes and the Dead. I don't know if they ever played together, actually. But, but you know, you they see didn't put the Dead and, and Miles Davis played together at Winterland. Right. Right. So here's an example. Are you familiar with Bebop Deluxe? Oh, yeah. I, I love Axe Victim. That's the jam. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was a Bebop Deluxe fan in the 1970s, and they came to the Palladium in New York, and I got to see them opening for, are you ready for this, Leonard Skinner. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Now, I would not have gone out of my way to hear Leonard Skinner live, but I did hear them live because I went to see the opening band. Yeah, and were you, did you become a fan? Leonard Skinner? No. No, no. Ah, interesting. I mean... Every time I hear Freebird, it's like, yeah, that's Leonard Skinner or Sweet Home Alabama, um, which unfortunately has taken on political connotations these days. Right. But no, I didn't become a fan, and I've never been a fan of the Allman Brothers or that whole Southern rock thing. Huh. But but my point is simply the, the juxtaposition of two very different bands in, in the same concert. But of course, gro- growing up in New York, all you have to do is walk around the corner to get a juxtaposition of strange bands. That's true. And and I think New Yorkers, native New Yorkers like me, and I, are you a native New Yorker as well? I am. Yeah, we take that for granted. And I think growing up there, it was like, oh, there's a jazz legend playing down the block. Ah, he'll be back. You know, like he'll play right. again. You miss out on so many things because you take it for granted. You know, I mean, I'm a native New Yorker and I've never, never been to the Statue of Liberty. Me neither. All it means to me is... If I'm on the ferry, it just means, oh, we're almost there. Got to get my stuff together. (laughs) I kick myself every once in a while not having discovered jazz when I lived in New York. I could have gone to hear Bill Evans in 1980 at the Village Vanguard in his final performances, and Uh, I just didn't know that this stuff existed. I mean, I knew what jazz was, but I I didn't have the curiosity. I was into... Uh, you know, Grateful Dead and and progressive rock and punk and new wave and all that. And the jazz bug never caught me back then. And I missed so much. But, you know, we can't we can't worry too much about that. And we have access to all that music now. You know, you're talking before about curiosity. I have a 27 year old son. And while he doesn't really appreciate the Grateful Dead, he uses some sort of a website where he puts in a couple of names of artists he likes to find similar artists. And every once in a while, he'll come up with something and he'll come to me like, oh, hey, have you ever heard of television? It's like, duh, <laughs> of course I have. <laughs> or, or he's a real big fan of, are uh, you familiar with Nicholas Jar and Dark Side? Oh, yeah. yeah, sort of electronic stuff. Yeah. We had Dave Harrington of Dark Side on the show a few months ago, and, and my son is a huge fan. And the label that Nicholas Jar runs 
also has republished early recordings by Lydia Lunch. And I was like, yeah, duh, okay, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. I saw mm -hmm. Lydia Lunch live. I even had a, a book signed by Lydia Lunch. She released a book of poems or something at some point. Barnes & Noble on 8th Street, she did a signing thing. And, oh, you know, cool. when you're 18 years old and Lydia Lunch is there in front of you, that's pretty huge. Oh, yeah, yeah. You were talking about that earlier, about how, like, these, these people were demigods, you know? They were, they, they, they were. Did. The fact that they were like walking around and like doing laundry and eating McDonald's like never occurred to you. And now it's weird. You, if you tweet at David Crosby, he'll tweet back at you, you know. And I don't know if I if I think that's good or bad. I you know, I think <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. You you can have this sort of contact, but it's not quite the same. Do you uh, think that Twitter and 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 Facebook and and this this uh, accessibility? Uh, do you think that that's like the net gain though? Or do you think it helps to kind of make us uh, feel less uh, involved or emotionally invested in the music? Well, I think everyone uses Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all that in order to maintain a fan base. I don't think they do this to actually interact with people. I think the goal for most of them, um, Stephen King retweeted me once and, and that's kind of cool because he's an interesting guy on Twitter. Yeah. Um, he says really interesting things, but there are some artists, musicians, authors who just say these sort of banal things that you can tell were written by a PR person. Right. So I think it really depends on the person, but can you imagine some 12 year old today getting retweeted by Taylor Swift? They'd probably, you know, freak out. And then in 10 years, they'll realize that it was not that such a big deal. Oh, yeah. So how does all this affect you as a musician now that when you're performing and you're releasing albums, how do you think the people listening to you are listening to your music? Do you think they're listening any differently than the way we are listening to music? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They, they are. Um, even people our age, uh, you know, who I, I talk to, they'll say, oh, I heard about you on Spotify or I found you on Pandora. And, and that's great. But I don't relate to that at all. And I always feel almost guilty, like someone will tell me about a record and they'll say, I'll send you this Spotify playlist. And I, I have to say, like, I don't I don't have Spotify. I don't use Spotify. So it feels it feels increasingly uh, I feel increasingly alienated in a lot of ways where I don't you know, you, you'll have a talk like we're talking about Brian Eno and Miles Davis. And then suddenly someone will be like, oh, I don't own physical media. And I just think like, what? Like how, how I just don't, I don't get it. <laughs> you know, I don't get but it. It's a shift and, and coming generations will not know that experience of physical media with the exception perhaps of like a special release that's only available on physical limited edition. If they're real fans, you know, vinyl and, and all that, but they they just, they're not going to have the reflex that we had. And this is really a generational shift. It's going to change music a lot, I think. Yeah, and again, like my feeling is is more pity than anything because I, I mean I learned so much about the world through music. You know, I learned l listening to hip hop made me more political than I was. Uh, listening to Iron Maiden made me want to read the loneliness of a long distance runner. You know what I mean? Like like well, where did that reference come from? You know, and it's, it just opened up so many other worlds, non musical worlds to me, and I just don't see that happening. While you're like you were talking earlier about how it was, uh, you know the the, the chill out playlist or something. There's a really good article uh, by Liz Pelly about this. It just came out on the baffler about how the, it's, it's a playlist oriented culture. It's not about the artist. It's about what's my mood right now. There's something very creepy in twilight zone about that. It's good that you mentioned that because she's going to be on next week's episode of the next. Oh. <laughs> we saw that first article about the playlist. And then the more recent one about how Spotify and playlists are changing the way people listen to music. And, and that too resonated with us. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, I was reading her article, and I almost felt like I got scooped because she mentioned <laughs> she mentioned uh, Muzak, and I had mentioned that in mine, which I had written earlier. But um, there's definitely something in the in, in the water about thinking about things like that because you know you're not engaging with music the same way, like you know, if you're waiting at the dentist's office or something. Um, that's the other thing. I was, maybe you guys will be interested in this too. The other thing I was thinking about is when music was ubiquitous. You were talking about top forty. You don't pay attention to it the way you do when you're listening at home. And then years later, you'll come back and hear something like uh, a few recent examples for me is like Jerry Lee Lewis, like is a guy I was always aware of, of course, great balls of fire and high school confidential. Everybody knows those songs. And then one day I was sitting home and I was in the right mood and I listened and I really listened and I went, wow, I just went, wow, I can't believe this guy is doing this on a piano. Uh, Sade is another one. My dad loved Sade and it just kind of just tuned it out. And now I listen to Sade's records and I'm like, the production on those records is unbelievable. Music is incredible. And so it's like going back and listening, deep listening, you you know, the distinction between deep listening and, and wallpaper listening, because we're talking about, it, I think that's, you know, there, there's, it doesn't have to end is what I'm saying. <laughs> you can keep, keep rediscovering things. Well, thank you, James. You've ended this on a positive note instead of ending it on a negative note. Thanks for spending this time. This was very interesting. Oh, thanks for having me. I love the podcast. Thanks. Great, thanks. It is time now for Kirk and I to present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you going to be listening to? My next track this week is something quite obscure. And just before I started recording this, I tried to find where this music was available, and I can't find it. It is five tracks of a soundtrack of the Wim Wenders movie Kings of the Road, Im Lauf der Zeit in German. And the artist that performed this music is Improved Sound Limited. Love that name for a band. And what reminded me of this is that Doug was talking about the Rolling Stones, and that made me think of Exile on Main Street. And there is a real Exile on Main Street, acoustic Exile on Main Street feel to these songs. Now, I've got five tracks, it's about 16 and a half minutes, and I'll be darned if I can't find... This was a legal download, this wasn't a BitTorrent thing or anything like that, and I found a website, and they were all downloadable at 120K, but I don't know where they are anymore. If you don't know the film, it's probably the movie that I've seen the most in my life. I've probably seen it 15 times, and it's a very 1970s film about two guys who just wander around Germany on the border between East Germany and West Germany, and one guy is repairing movie projectors, so it's a, a lot of talk about the films and all that, and the other guy is just broken up with his wife, and it's black and white, a lot of it was shot improvised, it's an extraordinary film if you like that kind of stuff, but the music, every once in a while I'll flip through my iTunes library and I'll come across this music and say, hey, I'm going to put this on, and it sets me in the mood of this film. So it's Songs from Kings of the Road by Improved Sound Limited, and if I can find a download link between the time of recording and the time we release this podcast, It'll be included in the show notes. Doug, what about you? Okay, so the other night I watched a movie on Netflix called The Polka King, which stars Jack Black as a, well, I, I won't go into the plot, but he plays a good-hearted guy gone bad, which is very similar to a character Jack Black played in the movie Bernie from a few years ago, which also happened to be available on Netflix, and I like that movie a lot, uh, so I watched it again, especially the first 20 minutes or so where they are, establishing Bernie's character. And there's a scene over the opening credits with Bernie driving his car through town singing with, with great exuberance this gospel song called Love Lifted Me. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I mean, you know how it is when you're singing along in the car to a song on the radio. You go nuts. 
So I, I began to wonder, is this a real song or is it something they cooked up for the movie? Well, it is a real song by the Florida Boys. I dug it up. Now, the Florida Boys were, or are, an immensely popular gospel group. Five guys, five singers, sometimes four. And they've been together since the 40s. They had a TV show for a while, sold tons of records, very popular. And they do this sort of white gospel music that's a, a little traditional jazz, a little Texas swing. You know, this song, Love Lifted Me, is done like an arrangement of Tiger Rag. Do you know that song, Hold That Tiger? Hold That Tiger? It's got a little bit of honky-tonk piano, a little swinging pedal steel. It's a formula they use on a bunch of their songs, actually. But the vocals are the winning element here. The, the arrangements are pretty cool, very dynamic, a lot of fun. Uh, even though Christian music isn't generally something I'm interested in a lot, I really like the energy here. So here it is, The Florida Boys, Southern Gospel Treasury is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.